everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me here today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every single Wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it. We also upload the video version onto YouTube every Wednesday as well. So make sure you are subscribed there too. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about a true case of betrayal. This is the case of Nina Whitney. This is one of those cases that is going to make you extremely frustrated. It's going to make you also wonder who you can really trust. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Nina Whitney was born on March 5th, 1935 in South Dakota to her parents, Richard and Eleanor. However, her family moved to Kansas City, Missouri a little over 10 years later, where Nina stayed all throughout her life. Now, Nina did not have the easiest upbringing by any means. Her mother left the family when she was a child, which left her to take care of her five siblings. Nina had two marriages as well. The first marriage that she had was to a man named Cortez Waters, and the two had a daughter who they named Nina, so Nina Jr. However, she went by the name Jody. Now, Nina and Cortez divorced in 1955, and Jody went on to live with her paternal grandparents, so Cortez's parents. And it wasn't really clear, there wasn't a lot of information about why exactly that was the case. However, that is the way it panned out. Now, Nina then went on to marry her second husband, a man named Robert Gesser, and the two had another daughter together named Paige. Now, Robert and Nina divorced when Paige was around nine years old, and from then on, it was Nina as a single mom raising Paige. Now, after years of struggling financially, Nina finally got a stable and steady job working on the assembly line of a General Motors in Kansas City, and after saving up enough money, she was finally able to buy a house for her and her daughter. She bought a home in Kansas City where she raised Paige, who ultimately went off to go to college at Central Missouri University, where Paige got her degree in criminal justice and spent 25 years working as a parole and probation officer. As Paige got older and older, the relationship with her mom, Nina, got stronger and the two became very close. They spent lots of time together and they were really able to create a very tight-knit mother-daughter relationship. Now, something to know about Nina is that she was an incredible resilient woman. She was motivated and determined and very strong-willed. She always wanted the best for her and her daughter, more importantly. She wanted to give her daughter a great life, and Nina was well-loved by everyone who knew her, and she had a very fun nickname by everyone who knew her as well, and that was the Frog Lady. And this was because Nina's favorite animal, without a doubt, hands down, was frogs, undeniably. She absolutely loved frogs and she collected them and not the actual animal. She didn't collect the animal. She collected any, you know, little tincture or any little frog stuffed animal, anything that had to do with frogs, Nina had it. You would walk into her home and there were frogs everywhere, frogs on the dishes or frog, you know, stuffed animals, like I said, or little tinctures, ceramic frogs, stuffed frogs, any different decor that had a frog on it, Nina owned it. Clothing with frogs on it. They were everywhere. They just made her happy and it was something that she surrounded herself with. Now, this case begins and takes place on October 29th of 2010. 
Now, on the night of October 29th, there was a 911 call that was made by Nina's daughter, Paige. Paige had called 911 and told them that she found her mom, Nina, laying unresponsive in her basement. Now, initially, when Paige found her mom laying at the bottom of the stairs in the basement, she initially thought that Nina could have suffered from a heart attack or possibly that she had fallen down the stairs. Nina was getting older, and so these weren't out of the realm of possibility. However, when police got there, Paige learned that this was not the case. When police arrived on the scene, Nina had a shelf laying on top of her, and police assumed that Nina had grabbed onto this shelf for balance and it had also fallen with her. However, once police removed the shelf and turned Nina's body over, they realized very quickly that this was no natural death at all and that Nina had actually been brutally murdered. Nina had suffered from several stab wounds and there were also defensive wounds on her, indicating that Nina did try to fight for her life. Now, along with that, police also noticed several buttons of Nina's shirt were missing and there was saliva on her chest. Now, this indicated to police that Nina's murder could have been sexually motivated and the autopsy revealed that Nina had been stabbed a total of 24 times and that the stab wound that killed her was directly through her throat. Now, as you can imagine, this was very shocking for everyone in Nina's life to comprehend, especially her daughter, Paige. Because again, when Paige arrived to Nina's house that night, she thought that her mom had passed away of natural causes or had a terrible accident like falling down the stairs. But now she's learned that her mom has been brutally attacked and killed and not just killed, but overkilled. To go to the point of stabbing someone 24 times does fall in the definition of overkill. This was someone who was very angry and was very passionate about murdering her mom. So this was a very big shock to her. And police wanted to sit down with Paige and figure out what exactly was going on here. So when police sit down with Paige, they ask her to recount this night, to recount the night of October 29th. Now, according to Paige, she claimed that the day before, on October 28th, Nina and Paige had made plans to go shopping together the following day, October 29th. Now, Paige claimed that she called her mom at about 6.45 p.m. on the 29th to see when she wanted to go shopping. However, she didn't get a response. Now, according to Paige, she said that Nina always answered the phone. So for her to not answer the phone for any reason was incredibly unusual. She typically was always at her house, always there to answer the phone. And so when Paige called and Nina didn't pick up the house phone, Paige then decided to call Nina's cell phone, which also went to voicemail. And again, this was extremely unusual. And based off of these two missed phone calls, Paige began to panic and decided that she was going to go over to her mom's house herself to make sure that everything was okay. Now, according to Paige, when she pulled up later that night, it was dark outside and the front porch light was not on, which was also unusual. Nina always had the front porch light on. And so according to Paige, she knew that something was not right. Now, according to Paige, when she walks inside the home, she calls out for her mom, however, isn't getting an answer. Another thing that Paige notices when she walks in 
is that all of the lights in the house are off. So now not only is the front porch light off, the inside lights are off, Nina's not answering her phones, Paige knew that something was very wrong. So she walks in and starts turning all of the lights on. She's calling out for her mom. She's walking into the different bedrooms. And this is when Paige notices that the door that led to the basement was open. And when she turned the corner and looked down the stairs into the basement, that is when she saw her mom, Nina, laying unconscious at the bottom of the stairs. Now, immediately, Paige pulls out her phone and calls 911. However, in the midst, in the chaos of doing so, she notices some strange noises that are coming throughout the house, and she begins following these noises, and this is when she notices a noise coming from the guest bathroom. When Paige walks into this guest bathroom, she sees that the bath is running. The bath faucet is running, and what made it even more odd is the fact that the bathroom with the bath faucet running was in the guest bathroom. This was not Nina's primary bathroom, and actually, it was the bathroom that she used the least in the house. So she thought that it was odd that the bath faucet would be running in this particular bathroom because it never got used before. Now, when police were canvassing Nina's home, they went into her bedroom, and it appeared that someone had laid on top of the bed. There seemed to be an imprint on the top of the bed. The bed itself was made. However, again, it appeared that someone had laid on top of that comforter. And along with that, police also discovered buttons and they appeared to be the same buttons that matched the shirt that Nina was wearing when her body was discovered. Now, along with that, one of Nina's hair rollers was found on the bed as well. And so with all of this information, it led police to believe that Nina was possibly assaulted on that bed. Now, police also looked into Nina's kitchen and when they did that, they opened her knife drawer and they noticed a small cutting knife and it appeared that this cutting knife had what seemed to be blood at the base of the knife. Now at this point police decide to process the entire house with luminol to see if there was presence of blood throughout the home. Now if you're unaware luminol is used to detect the presence of blood within the house and even if the blood has been wiped away luminol would be able to detect that as well. Now the luminol did detect that there was blood in Nina's bedroom her bathroom, the hallway, the living room, and the kitchen. Along with that, police noticed that there was no sign of forced entry in the home, and the one thing that was missing from Nina's house was her cell phone. Nothing else in the house was taken. It didn't appear that there was any ransacking. This did not appear to be a robbery whatsoever. It definitely appeared to be a targeted attack. Now, when learning about the fact that Nina's cell phone was missing, Paige told police that Nina typically always kept her cell phone on a shelf next to the front door. That way, she had easy access to it whenever she needed it. However, it was not there. Again, police could not find the cell phone anywhere. Now, police did try and track the cell phone down through pinging the cell phone to try and find its location, and it was when doing that that they learned that the cell phone was actually still on, which they were surprised about. And not only was it still on, this cell phone was actively being used by someone in South Kansas City. Now, with that piece of information being held, police also began asking around to neighbors in the area 
area to see if anyone saw anything suspicious leading up to Nina's death. And that is when police were told by neighbors that several witnesses did see a man walking around the neighborhood on the day of the 29th. And according to this neighbor, this was a white male who was walking with a limp. He had a very specific and noticeable walk. And along with that, this man appeared to be looking over his shoulder. He seemed to be looking around to see if A, anyone was looking at him, but also it appeared that he did not know his way around the area. It was apparent that he did not live there. So with all of this information, police now decide that they want to track down the cell phone to see who is in possession of it. And this is what led them to South Kansas City, where they kicked down the door of a home of the person who had the phone. Now, when doing this, police learned that a man who went by the nickname Lil Mickey had possession of Nina's cell phone. Now, as you can imagine, when police learned that Lil Mickey has Nina's cell phone and they are able to track down Lil Mickey, it makes sense that they would arrest him and bring him down to the police station for questioning. Now, upon questioning this man, Lil Mickey told them that he had nothing to do with Nina's murder at all. He had no idea who Nina was. He claimed that he was walking along the street one day after the murder and found the phone on the ground. He claimed that when he picked the phone up and saw that it was still a working phone, he had no reason in his mind not to take the phone. He said that at the time he was tight on money. He was having some financial issues. So he didn't question when he found a working cell phone on the ground, but again, adamantly denied having any involvement in Nina's murder. Now, he also provided an alibi. Lil Mickey did. He provided an alibi to police, which did check out, and he did provide police with a voluntary sample of his DNA. Now, the questioning between Lil Mickey and police went on for several hours. However, because Lil Mickey's story never changed because of the rock solid alibi and because of the DNA not being a match, police needed to move on at this point because there was nothing that they could hold him with. And it really didn't seem like Lil Mickey had any tie to this murder other than this cell phone. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So at this point, police decide to bring in the witness who claimed to see a suspicious man walking throughout the neighborhood on the 29th. Now, they did this because they wanted the neighbor to talk to a sketch artist to come up with a composite sketch. That way, authorities could release it to the public in hopes to get more tips. Now, at this point, police had no way of knowing whether or not this man who was seen by this neighbor was, in fact, Nina's killer. However, again, they had nothing else to go off of at this point, so they needed to make this sketch. And when they did, the man that was drawn up in this sketch was very, very 
average looking. This was an average looking male. He had glasses. He didn't have a lot of hair. He had, you know, some forehead lines. And that was really it. Those were really the only distinctive features of this man. However, police still put the composite sketch out into the public, just hoping that they would get some sort of a tip. And they did get multiple tips of people calling in saying that they think that they know who this man is. This man looked like someone that they knew. But the bottom line was that the sketch itself was so vague that obviously many people were going to assume that they knew who this was based off of this average looking sketch. Now, police did show this sketch to Paige herself. However, she had no recollection of who this man was. She claimed that she did not know him. Nothing was really clicking here. But again, regardless, police still put that out into the public. Now, along with releasing the composite sketch, police also spoke with several different workers that had done housework on Nina's house within the past year and tried to get their DNA as well. So they spoke to those people and got their DNA as well and tried to see if it was a match to the DNA found in Nina's home, specifically the saliva that was found on her chest. Now, when police ran these forensics and ran the forensic of that saliva, they were absolutely shocked because that saliva's DNA did not come back as a positive match to any of the people that authorities had spoken to. However, it did come back as a match to another murder in Harrisonville, Missouri, that occurred exactly almost two years prior to Nina's death. Now, Harrisonville is about an hour south of Kansas City, and that is where a woman named Kara Jo Roberts was found murdered in her home and left to die in her bathtub. Now, even though the main difference here is that Kara was found shot while Nina was found to be stabbed, there were some similarities in this case. Now, both of these cases involved sexual assault, and police also paid attention to the fact that Kara was found in a bathtub, and Nina's crime scene also involved a bathtub as well. Now, granted, Nina was found at the bottom of the stairs in the basement. However, remember how I mentioned that Paige had discovered the bath was running in Nina's guest room. Now, police did speak with some of the detectives who worked on Kara's case, and that is when they learned that Kara and her husband lived in a small town. They had one child. They seemed to have a very loving relationship, and they learned that Kara's murder occurred on November 5th, 2008, which again was eerily close to Nina's murder on October 29th, 2010. Now, Kara's husband was the one who discovered her body, and when he did, he found her in the bathtub with the tub water running. Again, very similar to Nina's. Now with Kara, there were also zip ties found at the scene as well as a roll of duct tape. And similarly to Nina's case, with Kara, there was no sign of forced entry in her home either, indicating to police that whoever did this to both Nina and Kara definitely did not seem to be a threat. They didn't appear to be a threat. They either knew their victims or this is someone who the victims weren't threatened by. Now, when it came to Kara's case, police definitely thought initially that it wasn't out of the realm of possibilities for Kara's husband to be somehow involved. They thought it was very possible that he was responsible for this because not only did police always look at the spouse in any murder investigation or kidnapping investigation, really any true crime investigation to begin with, they always look at the husband, the wife, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, whoever it is. Those are always the first people that are looked at here. But not only that, the husband was the one who discovered Kara's body. So they did look at him at first, however, very quickly ruled him out. 
Now, there was also a potential witness for Kara's murder, similarly to Nina's, because there was a neighbor who lived down the street from Kara who claimed to have seen a man walking in the neighborhood that day. And similarly, that man also walked with a very distinct limp. And that was the same description of how the man was walking in Nina's neighborhood on October 29th. Police also learned that whoever this man was, was driving a Jeep. And when learning more about Kara's case, they learned that whoever murdered Kara did so very quickly because from the last time she was seen to the time that her body was discovered was only about 45 minutes. Now, with all of this information, police wanted to start looking into Kara's life and Nina's life and see if there were any common factors that would tie the two of them together, see if they knew any of the same people, because clearly whoever did this had some tie to both of them because there was matching DNA found at both crime scenes. But even with all of the consistencies that police had in both cases, they could not find anyone that knew both Kara and Nina. They could not find anyone that connected the both of them together. And at this point, Paige, Nina's daughter, had not been informed about the tie between her mother's murder and Kara's. And this is because police were very, very tight-lipped on this case. They did not want to take any chance of this being leaked out into the media or to the press. However, at this time, police knew that they needed to enlist Paige's help to see if she could possibly make a connection between Nina and Kara. So they end up telling Paige because also... Paige was in law enforcement because like I mentioned in the beginning, she had worked as a parole and probation officer. So she did have some background knowledge when it came to law enforcement knowledge. Now, when police brought this information to Paige and tell her the news about the connection between Kara and Nina's murder, Paige still said that there was nothing that came to mind in terms of a connection between the two of them. So now police are back at square one. Now, at this point, months are passing in the investigation and there are no new leads that are coming in and Paige is growing very frustrated. She feels like her mother's case is going cold. She feels like her mom is never going to get justice for what happened to her and she really starts to take matters into her own hands. She starts going around to her mother's favorite places. She went to the stores that her mom would go to, any flea markets in the area, her favorite shops, anywhere that Nina was known to go, Paige would also go there and she would go out and she would look for any man who was driving a Jeep who also was limping, anyone who matched those descriptions. And while she did find a lot of Jeeps out there and a lot of men driving those Jeeps, there was no one that had that distinct walk and no one that really matched the composite sketch description that had been made in the beginning of the investigation. Now, at this point, seven months had gone by after Nina's murder. And now we are looking at May 26th, 2011. Now, on this particular day, Paige was driving down the highway. And while she's driving down the highway, she looks up and she sees the billboard of the composite sketch. Now, this was nothing new. She had seen this billboard before. She had seen the composite sketch hundreds and hundreds of times. Obviously, it's the composite sketch for her mother's killer. And so she's driving down the highway. She looks up at this billboard, sees the composite sketch. However, this time, something is different. This time, something clicks. And Paige claimed that when she looked at the sketch this time, she knew exactly 
who murdered her mother. And when she looked at the sketch, she knew that that man was a man named Jeff Moreland. Jeff Moreland was Paige's ex-boyfriend, and the two of them met in 1983 and dated for three years while they were in college. The two met in their criminal justice class, and according to Paige, Jeff was charming and funny, and she fell completely head over heels for him in no time. When they graduated, Paige went on to be a social worker, while Jeff went on to work as a police officer, which was his dream job. Now, according to Paige, Nina absolutely loved Jeff. Even after they broke up, Nina would always tell Paige that she wished that Paige and Jeff could work things out and get back together. She wished that Paige would have married Jeff. Jeff was the one that Nina always asked Paige about. She was the one that she always went back to in conversation when talking about her daughter's dating life. She compared everyone that her daughter dated to Jeff. That is how much she loved Jeff. Now, with this new epiphany that Paige now has, she decides that she's going to run Jeff's name through the system. And again, she's able to do that because she's a parole officer. She has access to that type of technology. And when she did so, she sees that Jeff is the owner of a black Jeep Wrangler that is registered in his name. She also learned that Jeff had retired from the police department about five years prior to Nina's murder, and it's explained that the reason for his retirement was because he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Now, Paige at this point has all this information compiled and she brings it straight to the police and she explains everything to them from start to finish. And when this happened, police start looking into Jeff and looking into who Jeff really is. And when they did so, they learned that Jeff lived in the same small town that Kara lived in, which was Harrisonville, Missouri. Now, police knew that this coincidence of living in Harrisonville, Missouri, was too much of a coincidence to simply be a coincidence. And so because of Jeff's connection in law enforcement, police were worried that if they spent too much time gathering evidence and trying to get everything together for a warrant, that word would get back to Jeff. They were worried that someone would tell him. So instead, police decided to drive over to Jeff's house directly and knock on his door and just show up. Now, when Jeff answered the door to the police, the police told him that his name had come up in a homicide investigation and that they needed to collect his DNA in order to rule him out. Now, Jeff had a very interesting response to this. When Jeff was told this by police, he simply said, quote, I need to take my cat to the vet before closing the door. Now, this was obviously very strange to police for a multitude of reasons. The first being that you would think if you were told that you are being looked into in a homicide investigation, you would think that would spark some sort of question. You know, if you were innocent, why am I involved in a homicide investigation? What are you talking about? I didn't do anything. There are many questions that come after you are being looked into in a homicide investigation. However, for Jeff, it was simply... I need to take my cat to the vet. Now, the following day, police follow up with Jeff with a phone call this time, telling him again they need his DNA. However, Jeff claims he's too busy and he just doesn't have the time. 
Now, it wasn't until about a week later that police end up receiving a phone call from the station that Jeff had originally retired from. Now, when the station called detectives, they told them that Jeff had informed the station about what was going on. He informed them that this was all occurring, gave them the whole lowdown, and voluntarily gave this police station his DNA. So they have Jeff's DNA and they'll send it over to detectives. So they have Jeff's DNA and detectives need to just go and pick it up. Now, when the detectives arrived to the station to retrieve the sample, they start having a conversation with Jeff's police station, with the officers at the police station, about how this interaction all went down, about what Jeff told them. Now, according to Jeff's police station, Jeff had called them and gave them the lowdown saying that he's being investigated for a murder and that he wanted to meet an officer from his station along the 71 highway, which an officer agreed to do. Now, it is important to know that Jeff is a very respected retired police officer. This is someone who his colleagues respected and trusted. So they really had no problem meeting Jeff alongside of a highway to go through with this interaction. Now, when the officer meets Jeff at the highway, he is further explaining what is going on, saying he's being looked into for a homicide investigation. And that is when he pulled out a swab, swabbed his mouth and placed the swab in an orange pill bottle and gave the bottle to his department while also giving him the card with the information from the detective that was working Nina's case. Now, there were a couple things wrong with this. Actually, there were many things wrong with this. When looking at this from a protocol standpoint, this is not typically how DNA is received or retrieved ever. That's just not really how it happens. You don't go to the side of a highway to pick up someone's DNA. And also they are not typically allowed to provide their own DNA sample. It needs to be a legitimate DNA sample, you know, not just Jeff pulling out a cotton swab and swabbing his own mouth. That is not protocol. So when the Kansas City police learn about this, they're telling the Harrisonville Police Department that this is not protocol, this is not how this is supposed to go, and that this is not right. And the Harrisonville police offer to throw away the DNA sample. They say, okay, we can get rid of it. However, the Kansas City police decide to still go through with it and still send the DNA off for forensics just for examination purposes. And they did test the DNA and it came back as being not a match to Nina's murder. Now, the fact that the DNA was not a match to Nina's murder, the fact that Jeff's DNA, if you're listening to me on audio, I'm putting that in quotes, was not a match to Nina's murder. It is not a surprise to police, the Kansas City police whatsoever, because both the detectives and Jeff himself, who again had been in law enforcement, knew that civilians, because again, at this point, Jeff is a civilian. He's a retired police officer. They cannot provide their own sample. Jeff knew that this was against protocol. And honestly, Jeff's actions were making police believe more and more that he was the one responsible. The fact that he was trying to jump through hoops to provide his own sample was just not right. And he knew that. So again, that's just raising the suspicion around Jeff. 
Now, a few days after this is when police received the phone call that they were dreading to get. There was another rape that was reported in Harrisonville, Missouri. However, luckily, the victim was able to get away. Now, police immediately rush over and they speak to this victim and they ask if the victim could take them back to the place where the rape had occurred. And when doing so, she drove authorities directly to Jeff Moreland's home. But at this point, Jeff was nowhere to be found and he was on the run. Now, police were trying to figure out where Jeff could have possibly gone. And that is when Paige informed them that Jeff had family that lived in Iowa. So they traced Jeff's cell phone and that's when they traced him to a motel in Iowa. Now, when police tracked down this motel and tracked down the room that Jeff had reserved, they walk in and see Jeff laying on the bed and an empty bottle of sleeping pills right next to him. However, fortunately, Jeff was still alive. Jeff had been taken to the hospital to get checked out after his suicide attempt before being taken into custody by police. Now, the detectives in Nina's case, the Kansas City police, drove up to Iowa to personally get the DNA sample from Jeff, and this time he had nowhere to hide. Police took the sample and drove all the way back down to Kansas City and sent the sample off to forensics, where they received their results the very next morning. And those results were that Jeff's DNA was a positive match to both crime scenes for Kara and Nita's murders. Jeff Moreland was responsible for the murders of both Kara Jo Roberts and Nina Whitney and was officially charged with both murders as well as sexual assault for that third victim. So you might be wondering what happened to that first false DNA sample that Jeff provided and it was after Jeff's arrest that police learned more about that and where that really came from. It was after Jeff's arrest that police learned that Jeff had called his son-in-law, his daughter's fiance, and asked for a sample of the fiance's DNA and blamed it on needing it for a paternity test. He went into further detail about how someone was blaming him for being the father of a child and he needed to prove that he wasn't, so he wanted the fiance to give the sample. That way it would be a definite no because obviously it wasn't the fiance's child. It was a whole runaround. He just gave a whole runaround. It was a lot of lies. However, the fiance agreed to do it. He agreed to help Jeff out with this and he gave the DNA. Now that is where the fake DNA came from. But regardless, Jeff was sent to trial for his charges and he was officially convicted and sentenced to 50 years for Kara's murder and 30 years for Nina's murder. So consecutively, that is 80 years in total. Now, as far as the why goes in this case, because again, now we have the who and now we're looking at the why. What was the motive in this case? And police really don't believe that there was one, which is very very frustrating. They believe that when it comes to Kara's murder, that Jeff was driving by her house and saw that she was home and made the decision that he was going to take her life in a blitz ambushed attack. Police believe that after Kara's murder, that that urge to kill struck Jeff once again. And that is why he went through with killing Nina, knowing that she would be an easy target because first off, she was an elderly woman. However, second off, he knew how much Nina loved and adored him and used that to his advantage 
managed to manipulate Nina into getting him into her house. And that I just think is one of the most cruel parts about all of this is that he used that to his advantage. I think the fact that he knew that he would be able to prey on someone like Nina when it came to looking for his victims. And it really just goes to show, you know, there wasn't a particular MO when it came to Jeff. He wasn't looking for a specific type of victim. He was more so looking to kill just for the sake of killing. You know, when looking at both Kara and Nina, there was the obvious age differences. You know, their appearance is different as well. And so there are just major differences when looking at his victimology. And it just goes to show that he was just after killing more than anything else. And it also leads us to the question of were these the only two murders that Jeff had committed? And the truth is, is that we might not ever know the answer to that. Now, the big thing in this case that police believe really brought this all together was the DNA that was left on Nina. And police theorized that Jeff left the bathtub running in Nina's house with the purpose of putting her into the bathtub. Similarly to Kara, how Kara's body was found in the bathtub, they believe Jeff was going to do the same thing with Nina. However, because her body, you know, was at the bottom of the stairs, he would have to carry her body up the stairs to place her in the bathtub because he had Parkinson's and wasn't going to be able to do that. They figured that he just left her body there instead, which ultimately left the DNA on her as well. Now that you guys is today's case. It is a case of Nina Whitney. And sadly, it is also the case of Kara Jo Roberts. And this is just, again, one of those very much cases of betrayal. It's one of those that really make you feel like you don't know who you can trust. So I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one but with that being said you guys that is all for me today thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of killer instinct again if you're new here hi my name is savannah and i'm your host of killer instinct make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly here on the podcast every single wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it i'll be back next week the brand new one for you guys and until then stay safe bye guys Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.